With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. And we're happy to say cricket is back. Well, nearly anyway. The 8th of July is the D-Day for the start of the West Indies against England series. And we should just pay a huge gratitude to the West Indies for answering the clarion call and getting our season restarted by flying over from the Caribbean. Poor things, they've arrived out here after a month and a half of beautiful weather. We've got traditional Manchester damp, dismal, dreary, overcast conditions Hopefully it will clear up by July the 8th when, Simon, you're going to be commentating for the BBC, aren't you? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, it's so exciting, the fact that international cricket is going to restart. First match at the Aegeus Bowl and then when that's over, quick turnaround, two test matches at Old Trafford. Very different for, for both sides. Everyone involved in broadcasting it, of course, because it's going to be behind closed doors. We were given some of the little detail uh, behind that this week. I mean, there was some suggestion that if you were broadcasting the match at the Aegeus Bowl, you couldn't go home between the first and second test matches. You had to go straight to Manchester. That is not the case now. Uh, broadcast media will be able to come out of the bubble between uh, test matches. What we do have to do, though, is we have to have a, a test for coronavirus uh, two to four days before the first test match and you have to get clearance, and only with that clearance will you be allowed inside the ground. But once you're sort of inside the bubble, sort of that's it, really, for the duration of that test match. So as I understand it, for example, you couldn't go out for a, a run or anything like that. You couldn't go out to exercise. Of course, it, during lockdown, we were allowed to go out to exercise. But once you're in that bubble, you can run, say, or exercise inside the ground 
inside the complex, which will be easier, say, at the Aegeus Bowl than it will be at the Old Trafford because the Aegeus Bowl's got a golf course. Once you're inside that complex, uh, you have to stay inside it for the duration of the test match. So it's going it's to be uh, very different. You're going to be locked down with your colleagues sort of, you know, day in, day out, night in, night out, really. So it's going to be, we're going to get to know each other very well. Do you think uh, that means that people are going to be doing star jumps in the back of the BBC box then while they're <laughs> off air? Well, I can't see Tuffers doing that, to be, to be <laughs> honest. But it, it is going to be a very different situation. Of course, I think once, you know, we'll also have to socially distance as well. There are all sorts of regulations about how close you can get to people, how the commentary box is going to be set up. But I suppose after a while, once you've been locked down for a while, for a few days, you know, it's, it's clear that there is no um, infection between people then you will be allowed to spend more time with people i mean the thing is for the ecb as i said they've never done anything like this before no one has done anything like this before so they're sort of learning all the time as well and you know things may change over the the course of the summer three test matches against pakistan some one day internationals against ireland are planned straight off the back of the west indies test series and then pakistan they've named their squad to come to England, there's a three-match series against Pakistan as well that they're hoping to put on in, in August and T20 International. So you know, plans might change as the summer goes on, but that's all essentially what's happening. We're going to be sort of locked down. The teams are going to be locked down during each test match. Well, that's uh, all very well, and it's exciting even just to, to see some cricket. That's, that's great that it's coming back. Actually, as a, a sort of little aperitif to this series, uh, the BBC have been digging into their archives and... 1984, the Lord's Test was replayed last weekend on telly, and it was great to watch that, wasn't it? Amazing performance by the West Indies, amazing team. Oh, it's fantastic to watch it again, really. Just all those memories. I thought, goodness me, this is 36 years ago. I mean, that is so sad. Life does go very quickly. 36 years ago, it felt almost like uh, yesterday. Things you forgot. Uh, Graham Fowler, that wonderful hundred in England's. Uh, first innings, England going off a bad light on the fourth evening when it felt as though they should have you know, been pushing on for the declaration. Of course, we know how that turned out on the fifth day. They got absolutely thrashed. Gordon Greenwich's double century. Just little things, just watching Malcolm Marshall really run in with purpose. What a fantastic bowler. Joel Garner as well. That, that height and, and, and mastery that he provided as a, a quick bowler. And the fact, actually, in that test match, West Indies only had two of their main Fast bowlers playing Eldeen Baptiste and Milton Small with a backup, which isn't, you know, these isn't sort of the great part of the great quartet. So that, that was another factor. And also, talking about Foxy Fowler, what a terrible LBW decision he got in the, the second innings. The ball clearly pitching outside the leg stump. Um, we needed DRS back in 1984. <laughs> that, that's, that's why we needed DRS or what, why we need it. Yeah, quite. Of course, talking of LBWs, it was also Mike Gatting was LBW twice, leaving it, wasn't he? Uh, batting uh, against mm. Marshall from the nursery end, leaving the ball and the ball nipping back up the slope to such an extent that actually there was a joke about it afterwards that Gat should have his bat stickers upside down on his back because he kept uh, putting his bat above his head to, to shoulder arms with fatal results. But watching that test match uh, made us think, didn't it? How good was that West Indies team? They were phenomenal. 
were they the best test team or best international team of all time? Or were the Australians that followed them, were they better? And indeed, bringing it up to date, can this current Indian team that have so many incredible resources and players to draw on and who were recently number one in the world in test cricket, can they eventually emulate the sort of dominance that those West Indies and Australian teams had in the previous eras? And that's our theme today. Well, I've been to India countless times in the last 20 years or so to commentate on white ball and red ball cricket. There's no doubt as India has changed and modernised, so has their cricket. They are the modern superpower, aren't they? But can they be as good and as dominant as those teams of the past? That's the question. They're the richest, the most populous cricket nation. Can they turn that wealth and fanaticism into world domination. We'll get the view of Ral Dravid, the former India captain and one of their greatest ever batsmen in this podcast. Maybe the red ball format actually requires um, you to practice things that sometimes are very uncomfortable. You know, going in the nets and facing bouncers is not the most comfortable thing. You know, standing in the middle of the net and having someone throw down and you can tonk it into the stands is a, is a, is a very nice feeling <laughs> and it's, it must give you a great high. But uh, you know that's a skill that's very valuable in, in white ball or 20 ball, 20 over cricket. But then if you want to succeed in red ball cricket, you learn need to learn other skills as well. You know. I think we should start by actually looking at those two great sides of the past. The West Indies team, roughly of the 1980s, although their period of domination started before that. They won the World Cup in 1975 and 1979. Of course, India beat them in. 1983 to sort of kickstart their cricket. You look back at the origins of India's potential greatness now, it probably started in 1983. But the West Indies, dominant in the late 70s into the 80s, they lost one test series in the 1980s, one test series in a decade, and that was in dubious circumstances as well, some terrible umpiring in New Zealand. And I remember in that series, um, there's a famous picture... Uh, of dissent against the umpires from Michael Holding, Mm. who is one of the most benign, polite, obedient people off the field without a ball in his hand, and he kicked out two stumps. There's a famous picture of him, you know, with his uh, his right foot extended horizontal to the ground and these stumps flying out of the ground because he was so disgruntled at a terrible LBW decision. Yeah, and some of the umpiring was shocking in that series. You have your batsmen wringing their hands after being hit on the glove, you know, gloving it to gully and the, wringing their hands, the umpire saying, oh, no, not, not out, that didn't hit the glove. And that was the sort of umpiring West Indies were up against in the one series that they lost in New Zealand in the 1980s. So there's that West Indies side of the 1980s and then there's the Australian side, and their period of, of domination started, I, I would say, with the introduction into their team of, of Shane Warne. Perhaps his first test match in England, the ball of the century to Mike Gatting, it started there, really. He was the colossus, and there were others as well, in that team that went through the 1990s into the 2000s. They won three World Cups in a row from 1999 onwards. So those are the sort of two teams we're talking about. That's the sort of domination uh, we're talking about, whether India uh, can match it. They've had success, um, but were they as good as those two great sides? Now, let's have a look at the West Indies side of, the, of roughly the 1980s, built on dominating batting and great fast bowlers, and not just a few fast bowlers, but a you know, quartet. A, and con- the, well, a conveyor belt. Conveyor belt, and, the, and there were plenty more as well. And they changed the game, really, because... The emphasis on fast bowling, on short pitch bowling as well, 
was not only terrifying to face and you know jeopardizing life and limb but it was also very hard to score off as mm. well because of the ball always rising waist and chest high with a four-pronged fast bowling attack you couldn't really score in front of the wicket so you had to score behind the wicket that was a much easier area to defend helmets were only in their infancy then protection that batsmen had was poor I remember being hit on the head by a West Indies fast bowler Sylvester Clark and I, I mean luckily I lived to tell the tale but I saw other horrible injuries of batsmen who were hit by West Indies fast bowlers you know who changed their whole outlook on life their ability their uh, ability to score runs certainly and the control that those fast bowlers exerted just made it almost impossible for other teams to win and then they backed it up with incredibly dynamic batsmen as well particularly the top four you think of Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes the most successful in terms of productivity opening pair in history in test cricket. Viv Richards to follow, who was an incredible impresario, uh, one of the most dominant and greatest batsmen who ever lived, uh, followed up by first Clive Lloyd, who was a, a man mountain to come in at number four, and it was incredibly intimidating, and, and then later Richie Richardson. So those top four batsmen were so good with those bowlers to knock over the opposition. What they didn't have was a, a killer spinner, though. And they didn't need it. Because the fast bowlers did the job. Uh, Even in India, they were so dominant, uh, it didn't matter about spin because they they bowled so fast. And you're thinking about four guys who were all bowling around about 90 miles an hour. We didn't have speed guns in those days, but I can tell you from facing them, they were incredibly fast. Malcolm Marshall bowled a ball to me. Okay, my batting wasn't great, but he bowled the only ball to me that I've never seen. And it knocked out my off stump before I'd moved. And he was just one of four. You think Joel Garner wasn't as quick, but he was he got this incredibly awkward bounce. He was very accurate and he could be fast on his day. Michael Holding, everybody knows about him, whispering death, gliding to the, the crease almost silently and then unleashing those thunderbolts. Patrick Patterson was absolutely fearsome. The only thing you could see when he ran up to bowl was the sole of his foot as he put his left foot high into the air before bringing down his right arm and Graham Gooch the great England batsman said it was the only time facing Patrick Patterson where he was actually in fear of his life I haven't even mentioned Andy Roberts of course who had famously two bouncers the one you could see and the one that you couldn't he was able to bowl one ball which got up high at your head and you could sort of play it and you thought well that's okay and then he bowled a much quicker one somehow, which looked the same, but whistled past before you'd had time to react. And actually, Courtney Walsh was also very good at that. He was partnered by Curtly Ambrose. So that sort of legacy of fantastic fast bowlers was succeeded by Ambrose and Walsh, and they continued the West Indies domination into the 90s. Yeah. What, what was it like? You talked about fear, and Graham Gooch had you know, feared facing Patrick Patterson. What was it like when you put your pads on, you got your box on, you were next man in, and you knew you had one of these West Indian fast bowlers to face. Lots of people uh, emerged from the toilet uh, because they were just not very confident and it always seemed to initiate if you were next in or due to being next, uh, a a quick visit to the toilet before you went out. It it just, you, you had these butterflies in your stomach. And in my case, it wasn't so much about getting injured, it was just getting out. 
knowing there was a likelihood of getting out because these guys bowled so many good balls which were so difficult to play, rising above chest high from not very short on the pitch and at, at great speed. And it was just very, very difficult not only to survive but to score off as well. There was so little scoring options. You didn't want to look as if you were afraid, but I'm sure most batsmen were, or many batsmen were. And the problem is, partly, that the protection you had, mm. we started with just side pieces on the helmets, so no visors, so I saw people hit in the face, and that you know makes you immediately very apprehensive. Things like arm guards were, were not great. We had a box down our trousers, but it was pretty much like a soap dish. Uh, it wasn't very strong. Uh, even pads and gloves, people got broken fingers quite often. I, I actually remember uh, talking about their pace. I remember going out to bat against Malcolm Marshall, and what struck me the most going out to bat at Lords was that the slips and wicketkeeper were closer to the boundary <laughs> than they were to the pitch. Uh, they were outside what we now know as the 30-yard circle, that in itself, when you're going into bat and you're looking at how far back the wicketkeeper and slips are to take the ball, is enough to, to give you kittens. Yeah. And Malcolm Marshall, I think he was the best of the lot. I saw him bowl at the start of his career and he was lightning quick, whippy and skiddy as well. I remember a one-day match at, at Bristol. It was a domestic one-day match where he bowled a bouncer to John Childs who went on to play some cricket for England and Childs gloved it for six over <laughs> the fine leg boundary. He was trying to get out of the way and hit, hit his glove and went over the fine leg boundary. And in those days, the boundaries at Bristol straight were, were very long and it flew over the over the rope. It was, it was dramatic and actually broke his hand as well and he couldn't bowl in the rest of the game. And then Marshall, later on in his career, he, he slowed down a bit and he became a really canny, skillful bowler. But he was he was was rapid when he started. He was rapid when he started. I know a lot of younger players and even younger people kind of doubt how quick these guys were. But what I can say is I faced them and in recent times I've stood out in the middle watching modern bowlers, the Dale Stain types, uh, Jimmy Anderson, you know, the quick bowlers of today, bowling on the pitch to get ready for the match. And there's no difference. If anything, some of these West Indians were quicker. I'd say Marshall was as quick as Dale Stane mm. in the way that he bowled as well as his pace. And, you know, the, the anxiety he gave you is illustrated by the fact that in one game I faced him and the ball whistled past the edge and there was a sort of a noise, but I was pretty convinced I hadn't hit it. And then I realised, looking at Marshall down the other end, that he was going to bowl the rest of the over. So I walked <laughs> off. Walked off. And I just gave myself out, <laughs> which didn't say a lot about my own bravery, but it also said quite a lot about the impact those guys had. Did anyone say anything when he got back to quite the dressing a lot room? Of people, yeah. Oh, they noticed you hadn't hit it. There, there, was, there was quite a lot of dissent in the dressing room about what the hell was going on. But it just got into your mind as much as into your body the way they bowled. On the back of that story, we want you to be involved in this podcast and future podcasts as well. So we're posing you a question, and the question is, what's the scariest spell you've ever either faced or watched in a cricket match? It might be that you were next into bat and you almost couldn't watch, or you actually refused to go in and bat. I remember once playing in a match, actually, which I was bowling, and the number 11 wouldn't come into bat. It was only a student, so you can forgive his trepidation. But we want to know, when was the time you were most fearful, either in the middle facing a terrifying fast bowler, or about to face one, or watching from the sidelines? You can send in your thoughts to simon.hughes at the cricketer.com and we will read out the best ones next week. That's simon.hughes 
at thecricketer.com. Simon.Hughes at thecricketer.com for those memories. Let's move on to Australia. In the 90s and then in the 2000s, they were this incredible machine of a team. And they had colossuses of the game as well. We mentioned Shane Warne, that bought the ball of the century to Mike Gatting. But they had Steve Waugh. They had Glenn McGrath, brilliant uh, pace bowler in his own right. They had Matthew Hayden. They had Ricky Ponting. They had Adam Gilchrist. They had some of the greatest players ever to play the game. And they all came along, roughly, all at the, all at the same time. Warne was the... A magician Steve Waugh was he the man that really drove that team forward? There was a sort of flintiness about him, a, a ruthlessness about him. Yeah, I think ruthlessness is a good word. And if you compare the West Indies of the eighties with Australia of the nineties, I felt that the West Indies were sort of entertainers. They were the kind of Harlem Globetrotters in a way. They were incredibly exciting to watch, mm. very charismatic. The Australians were clinical. You know, they were absolutely hard nosed, relentless totally uncompromising, led by Steve Waugh, who just ground opposition down, gave them absolutely nothing. And I remember bowling at him in an early part of his career when he was playing for Somerset, and I bowled what I felt was a pretty decent few overs at the death in a one-day game, and he took it for about 50 runs. And I was trying to get these Yorkers in at the base of leg stump, and I was doing okay. He was hitting them for four. He was years ahead of his time in that way because he just, although he didn't look a very good player, he got runs and he hit the ball into gaps and he hit the ball very hard. And he had that sort of almost gimlet-eyed, jaw-clenched determination to see off any bowler and try and maximise them for his own benefit and his team's benefit. You didn't think he looked a very good batsman when he first saw him, did he? I mean, I didn't. I I really didn't. And he took me for 72 of eight overs in a one-day game most of those were right ball, decent balls, yeah. but they, he just hit them into gaps with a, a, an amazing relentlessness. Mm. McGrath and Warren, were they the two keys for Australia, though? Bowlers take... I mean, do bat, bowlers win your matches, batsmen draw your matches? Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, I would say, though, that although their bowlers were very effective, McGrath and Warren, in two ways, firstly, in taking wickets, and secondly, in drying up the runs, because Warren the magician of a leg spinner, was also incredibly accurate. So he only conceded around about 2.5 runs and over, which is amazing for a very difficult skill like a leg spinner to, to, to produce. McGrath, the other end, again, absolutely relentless, like a robot, bowling ball after ball in the area where the batsman least liked it. I think he took Michael Atherton's wicket 19 times. He always got the opening batsman out, but he didn't give batsman any scope either throughout a spell, and he cursed himself, didn't he, if he gave a batsman a a loose ball. But their batsmen were also very important because they were so dominant, they were so intimidating. They raised the scoring rate in test cricket by about a run and over. Mm. So they were going at four and over and taking a game away from you. And just when you thought you got through the top order, the intimidating Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer or Mark Taylor uh, and Ricky Ponting, you know, who was absolutely remorseless with the bat and others, Mark Wall, Steve, whoever, then you got suddenly thinking, well, we've got into the tail now and in walked Adam Gilchrist averaging 53, Mm. wielding his bat like a a samurai sword, slicing the weary bowlers to death. Mm. They were fantastic teams, both of them. Which was the best, in your opinion, of the two? 
I think Australia, marginally, because they just never let a team get off the hook. And I think if you look at the West Indies, they had that very powerful top four. And I mean, Viv Richards was the most amazing batsman that when you bowled to him, your legs turned to jelly. And that opening pair of Greenwich and Haynes as well, absolutely wonderful players. But after those top four, four or five batsmen... It was a little bit sketchy. I mean, Jeff Dujon, the wicketkeeper, was a, a stylish player who made runs, but they didn't really have a six, seven, eight that you'd necessarily really respect in the same way as Australia had with Gilchrist at number seven, for instance, and Steve Waugh sometimes batting at five or six. The Australian engine room built around Adam Gilchrist was that bit more powerful and reliable than the West Indian version. And if you look at the stats, actually, uh, the Australians... From 1993 to 2007, won 65% of tests and 67% of one-day internationals. The West Indies, between 1979 and 1990-ish, won 51% of tests and 65% of one-day internationals. So Australia, 65 against 51 tests and 67 against Mm. 65% one-day internationals were that slightly better team. The dominant figure in those Australian teams was Shane Moore, and he was the difference because he could bowl in any conditions. Yeah, and one thing that did happen with the West Indies in the 1980s is that away from home, teams used to make very flat pitches to try to negate their their pace bowlers. That's why there's a higher preponderance of draws. They had, and that's the, the feature of those stats, actually, is that it's very few defeats, but quite a lot of draws. And there were a lot of feather beds. <laughs> teams just did not want to face the full force of the West Indies fast bowlers. But two fantastic teams. It would have been wonderful in some sort of cricket heaven to pick, pick a composite 11 from those two eras and get them to play each other over a series of five in, in test matches and perhaps a, a three-match one-day series as well. Who knows? A three-match T20 series. They might not better cope with that because it, you know they, they played in the past and the modern game, the T20 game, is, is so advanced now. But it would just be wonderful to do it. We can't do that, but we can just admire the quality of those two sides. What about India? Where, where does this leave us with India then? They are definitely the modern superpower of international cricket. You look at the tournaments they've won. They won the 2011 World Cup. They won the 2007 World T20, which kick-started T20 cricket and led to the IPL and, and the, the T20 revolution, really, in India. They have lost one home series since 2004, so nearly 16 years, one home series they have lost. Can they go on and dominate cricket in the way that West Indies did, in the way that Australia did? I mean, there's a sort of partial domination there, certainly at home, aren't they? They're so difficult to beat at home in all forms of cricket. Yeah, they are, and they're equally not so good away from home, although I think one of the turning points for their own general performance was winning in Australia for the first time in a test series a year and a half ago. But no Steve Smith and no David Warner for Australia. That is true, but still, not easy to beat Australia in their own home patch. And India did it with a very consistent batting order that made sure they batted you know, most of the day and then just used their bowls. And what I think the, the, the difference with India now compared to 10 years ago is their pace bowling. A bit like the West Indies, they have a lot of people to choose from. They're not quite as, as dangerous. They're not quite as threatening to life and limb as those West Indies fast bowlers from the 1980s. But they still are very effective. Jasprit Bumrah, 
Mohammed Shami, Ishant Sharma, and a string of others, people like Varun Aaron and so on. They've got lots of people to choose from who can all bowl 85 to 90 miles an hour, which gives them that potency in any conditions. And then they've got some decent spinners to back it up. So they have got a, a core of a very good attack, which can play in any conditions. Whether their batting is quite at the level of the West Indies and Australia's of those great eras is questionable. Virat Kohli, incredible player, the most hundreds made in the decade from 2010 to 2019 of any batsman in the world. 27 test match hundreds in that time, added to all the one-day hundreds he made. And their win ratio in test cricket as the highest of any team in the decade, 2010 onwards, but it's only 52%. So it's not in the league of Australia, 65%, certainly in their dominant era. So, you know, they can still be beaten and they will get better, but how much better, I'm not sure. Let's hear from Raul Dravid. You talk about batsmanship there and and one of the problems has been translating dominance at home to dominance away he gives this insight into the potential problems for Indian batsmen white ball thinking dominates so it might be hard to make the necessary technical and mental adjustments to thrive say in England where the ball moves around more sometimes young players today they they get satisfied only when they hit boundaries or sixes or fours or they're scoring at a particular rate you know and uh, and that's if you want to bat for that long period of time and have that long a career in the in the red ball game um, then I think you need to have days like this as well, where you actually enjoy batting the whole day. And it's, uh, you know, I loved it. I, I love batting the whole day. But sometimes in the fast-paced world that we live in and the amount of one-day cricket they practice, sometimes I, I, I sometimes wonder if some of the boys actually ever get satisfaction from a good leave. You know, they want to hit everything in the middle of the bat or they want to hit boundaries. And only that gives them satisfaction. So they're not willing to sometimes be patient. We've got a few players on our team as well who, who, who bat in a very similar way and they don't play white ball cricket. Chiteshwar Pujara, for example. Pujara, you know, yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and I can sometimes sense the frustration because they're not involved in cricket for half the year. The young cricketer going up, he wants to be involved in the game 12 months of the year. And if you tell him that, no, you can only be involved for four or five months when it's red ball and not the rest of the year, he's... He's not going to like it, and, and who would? You know, you want to be you want to be playing cricket all the time. You want to be um, you want to be involved. So, so I think. But but you've look. I think I think the other example is that you've you've got players who've who've shown that you can succeed in all the three formats of the game. Guys like Virat Kohli is a really good example for us. You know, AB de Villiers, Joe Root. Uh, Joe Root. Um, guys are showing that in every country they've got role models who can actually um, you know play uh, all the formats of the game. So that's I think a positive and. That's what we keep telling these boys that, yes, I mean, I think you can do all formats of the game if you're willing to understand that each of those formats requires slightly different demands and challenges and and, and you have to practice them, you know, and and maybe the red ball format actually requires um, you to practice things that sometimes are very uncomfortable, you know, going in the nets and facing bouncers is not the most comfortable thing, you know, standing in the middle of the net and having someone throw down and you can tonk it into the stands is a is a is a very nice feeling, <laughs> and it's, it must give you a great high. But uh, you know that's a skill that's very valuable in, in white ball or twenty ball twenty over cricket. But then if you want to succeed in red ball cricket, you learn need to learn other skills as well. You know, it's a really interesting point that Raul makes about you, you want to play cricket all year round. You want to play white ball cricket. That's where the money is. That's where the the glamour is. And if you want to be an all round successful Test match side. You need to win away, don't you? In, in Test cricket, you need to win home, which India do. You need to win away consistently. You, you know that that fear you've got. Oh, 
Australia are coming or West Indies are coming, you know, in the 1980s, in the 1990s and 2000s, that thing, oh, India are coming. That is going to be such a difficult test. They've got X, Y, Z, they're fantastic cricketers. But it's not quite like that. I say, especially in England, where England have won 11 to 2 in the last three series, 11 test matches to India's two in the last few series, because. Indian batsmen, they, they cannot cope. They have not been able to cope with the moving ball. And it's a mental thing as much as it is a, a technical thing, which uh, Dravid re- alluded to there. And I think the difficulty for young Indian batsmen is they are slightly compromised because there are all these riches available in the IPL, for instance, which they want to be available for. And it's a cutthroat business, actually, getting into an IPL team and the uh, potential earnings are huge. But if you're out of it, the potential earnings are, are minimal. If you devote yourself just to being a test player, as somebody like Che Pajara is, you're only going to play for four months of the year and your earnings are going to be much smaller. But you have to play in a certain way. He was the key to India winning that series in Australia because he was just so devoted to the crease. But he doesn't have IPL contracts. And you can see young players being very compromised by that issue. One thing that we've noticed, certainly I've noticed, going to India, I first went there in in 1996 uh, for the World Cup is the development, the spread of the game. There was there were strong centres in Indian cricket, and they still are there, aren't they? Mumbai and Delhi and Bangalore and Chennai and Kolkata. They're, you know, they're, they're strong areas of Indian cricket. But when we go there now with, with the England cricket team, we're going to all sorts of different places in the country, and they all have magnificent stadiums. So the game has spread as well. So that can only strengthen Indian cricket. The facilities, the investment is there. Far more widespread in the country now. It's not just those strong centres which produced a lot of their top players. Massive competition throughout the country now. Totally. Uh, If you look at those grounds, Ranchi, which is MS Dhoni's hometown, brand new ground... Rajkot, which has that media centre like Lords, That's right, yeah. a sort of spaceship uh, over the top of the, the stand there at Rajkot. Then you've got a new stadium at Lucknow, a brand new stadium being built in Ahmedabad. A vast new stadium at Ahmedabad as well, not just yeah, a brand new the biggest stadium. In the world. Biggest in the world, yeah. Nagpur is very impressive compared to what it used to be like. Dharamshala, uh, fairly new ground in a dramatic location just below the Himalayas, which is going to stimulate a lot of cricketing interest there. And a ground like Pune as well. So lots of new grounds. And you, you're right about the facilities. It's, they've got loads of nets, for mm. instance. You know, we, we used to practice when I toured India practice on you know pretty crummy net surfaces on the outfields that were had been overused and turned square and weren't very good for practice with netting was all frayed and the ball went through the holes and you had to go and get it terrible standard of balls as well and not great bowlers to face now you get fantastic nets facilities gyms uh, swimming pools uh, all the kind of training facilities and nutritional facilities as well which is making sure that the players are very well drilled both physically and mentally. And not only that, but the outfields as well are superb. I remember playing in India in the 80s, and if you dived and you know cut your elbow, you needed a tetanus injection. It was sandy and pitted and very uneven. You quite often get one that would hit a, a bump and sort of hit you in the face or hit you in the chest or something in the outfield. Now, the outfields are manicured and magnificent, which means the fielders can dive, take those diving catches, dive over the rope and flick it back. That's 
really been a, a great boon to Indian cricket. But greater facilities and therefore more competition, more players playing, I mean, that, that, it's only going to be a good thing for the strength of Indian cricket, surely. And you talk about this production line of, of quick bowlers or the, the fact that there are more quick bowlers than there used to be. Presumably, this competition and the size of a country like India, you're going to, produce, you're going to start to produce more and more quick bowlers as well, which is going to help them win overseas, which is we which is we we have identified as the sort of the key that unlocks the door to domination. If you win home and away, that that proves you're a great side. And it lays down a legacy as well. I remember talking to, to Wazim Akram and uh, Waka Yunis, the great Pakistani pair, you know, and they said they were inspired to bowl fast from the seeing Imran Khan yeah. on TV and young Pakistani bowlers have been brought up watching Wacker Yunus and Wazi Makram bowling. So that's encouraged them to bowl quick in the same way you'll get young Indians now. They don't want to be a Sunil Gavaskar or a Sachin Tendulkar. If they've got a decent physique, they'll want to be a quick bowler like uh, Jasprit Bumrah or Mohammed Shami. So the strength will always be there in, in spin as well. But pace bowling and, and batsmanship, that all-round quality... Interestingly, actually, you say spin, but India, apart from Anil Kumble, who I think was more of a, a straight-on slow bowler rather than a genuine leg spinner, they've never had that much leg spin. They've had a lot of off-spin and left-arm spin, orthodox spin, but actually not much in terms of mystery spin, interestingly. Mm. And they haven't got any now. So it, it, that might be another reason why they might not be quite as dominant as that amazing Australian side of Shane Warne. Because they don't have a Shane Warne figure. Yeah, well, some, I suppose, some, yeah. But I mean, not many teams have had have that. Had but actually, Warne, if you true. want to be one of the great sides of all time, you want to be this, this magical team, you probably do need that, that top-quality spin bowler, or, you know, top-quality batsman, top-quality pace bowler. If you don't have the top-quality spin bowler then it might just undermine you. I mean, West Indies didn't have it, but they, they probably had some of those other bases covered. Yeah, you see, if you look at West Indies and Australian teams, those dominant teams, both of those sides had at least four great players. Yeah. How many greats in the current Indian side or will go on to be greats? Clearly, Virat Kohli, for sure. But who else? Jasprit Bumrah has an incredibly low average, but he's only just started his bowling career. I don't know who else, really. I mean, MS Dhoni would be considered a great, I suppose. He was more of a one-day player, really, in, in terms of his statistical record, but certainly had an impact in Test cricket. But maybe not as many other great players. R- Ravi Ashwin, you could say, is on the verge of being great, mm. but ha- is a bit patchy in his performance. Well, very strong at home. The, the point I'm making, though, is that you're talking about now, what we're saying is in the future, could, could this change? Because of the opening up of the game in India, because of the facilities, because of the competition, because of the IPL, then there's that possibility that, that cricket opens up so much for you and more people playing better players will come through that that's that's the point the groundwork is there now there's so much money investment in indian cricket that in the future they could really take hold of the world game and dominate it in in all all three forms that's the that's the possibility anyway that's the, well that's the challenge for them yes and you make the point about the the new grounds and I, i've just been looking at the indian under 19 team playing in the world cup and it's interesting to see where those players come from because they aren't predominantly from the main cities of Delhi and Calcutta and, and Mumbai. Four of them are from Uttar Pradesh, which is sort of southeast of Agra and southeast of Delhi, a less well-known area for cricket productivity. Uh, one is from Ranchi, MS Dhoni's hometown, and three are from Rajasthan, which is not a traditional producer of test players. 
So there you are. That, that whole point about the, the game is diversifying in India in terms of its, its geographical spread, drawing players in from, from all over the country. I wonder what Raul Dravid thinks about India's chances of dominating in the way the West Indies and Australia did in the past. I definitely am more confident about the white ball uh, part of our game. Uh, I, I definitely think having been now coached at a level just slightly below the international level and seeing the quality of, of our white ball game, uh, I have no doubt that we are going to be a force to reckon with in white ball T20 one-day cricket um, for the foreseeable future. Whether we dominate or not is dependent on a lot of things, but I have no doubt that we are going to be very, very competitive. And it's shown in our results. I mean, even in you know, semi-finals of the World Cup, Champions Trophy finals. So we're always going to be pushing for titles. Um, the red ball game is slightly different. I think we still have a little bit of way to go. Um, to say that we can... Uh, You're number one in the world. Yes, we are, but but I, I still think that, you know, um, we can be better. And, 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 and to talk about the dominance that you say or to have that level of consistency, I think that's a different kettle of fish. Being number one in the world for a few years or... For a, for a few months is different to uh, the examples you use. Yeah. And that level of dominance, uh, I think, in red ball cricket, we, I'm not saying that we can't get there and, and we certainly have the talent, but this is a bridge between our domestic game and the international game is quite large at the moment. In the white ball game, you know, the, the our domestic cricket and then the IPL makes, makes a big difference as well because it's like a bridge between the international game and a lot of our young players are getting a huge amount of exposure in, the white, in white ball cricket at the IPL, so which is fantastic, but... We need to create the similar kind of thing in red ball cricket if we want to be um, consistently successful. I mean, potential is there, but uh, but yeah, but like I say, I'll probably be more confident in white ball cricket. So I can see what Dravid is saying there in that the IPL has had an incredible impact on young Indian players in terms of their ability, in terms of mingling with players from around the world and coaches from around the world and has really enhanced their white ball cricket. But their first-class cricket in India is the poor relation mm. to the IPL. It isn't highly intensive. It doesn't have overseas players. It's not going to nurture those test stars of the future in as great a numbers as the IPL does for one-day cricket yeah, and T20 cricket. And players are naturally going to be drawn to short-form cricket as well because that's where the riches are. But there is that wealth, there is that strength in, in Indian cricket. You think surely, surely in Indian cricket there must be 11 superstars that can go on and, and, and dominate the world game in the way that those two great teams of the past have been able to do, not just in T20 cricket, not just in white ball cricket, but also in test match cricket as well. India have been getting there. They are so strong at home and they are, they are beginning to win away. Of course, the next challenge is... Can they win the World Test Championship? And then for all great teams, the challenge is if you win it once, is to win it twice and then possibly even win it a third time. And first on the agenda for the Indians, potentially anyway, is a tour to Australia in October 2020 to see if they can emulate that brilliant win that they created in Australia two years ago. If they can do that, they could go back to number one in the world in Test cricket. That will really be the clash of titans in October 2020 if it happens. Anyway, for now, thanks very much for listening and don't forget to send in your scariest moments to simon.hughes at thecricketer.com. Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.